We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. The way we describe it now to other applicants is Indian Health Services like Global Health, Peace Corps, Health, only you have equipment and labs and support. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. We're pivoting just a little bit from our international discussion to talk about the Navajo people. And we are going to be speaking with Steve Neal, who is a PA in Indian Health Services in Chinle, Arizona. Steve is the Chief of Staff for the Chinle Comprehensive Regional Facility. He is also a really great human being who has served as a National Health Service Corps Scholar in South Los Angeles. And then after completing his scholarship requirements, he chose to continue serving the underserved by moving to the reservation. Steve and I talk about the impact of COVID on the Navajo Nation. We talk about his role in informatics. We talk about financial literacy for PAs. And we talk about the benefits of working for Indian Health Services. As always, you can learn more about our guests at our website, papathpodcast.com. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning. Welcome. It's good to see you. Good morning. Yate Beneh, which means good morning in Navajo. Say that one more time. Yate Beneh. Uh, good morning. Uh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. We are so excited to hear about your story, the incredible work that you're doing up in Chinle, Arizona, all the things that you've explored in your career, which is really interesting, particularly given that you have committed to serve underserved populations your entire career. And I just have such tremendous respect for you from the moment I met you in PA school to following through your career from afar. I'm, what, let's start with kind of your story about becoming a PA. Why did you become a PA and kind of what's been your path to going down the route of serving the underserved? Well, thank you so much for that. I uh, appreciate the opportunity and uh, those are some kind words. So um, thank you for that. I started my PA career. I uh, I took off some time after college, and I was a guide in India and Thailand, and kind of just wandered around the world for a couple of years. And I came back, and I got a job as a microbiology microbiology tech phlebotomist at a hospital, and sort of decided what do I want to do with my life at, at that point. And my parents were nurses. My dad was actually a nurse practitioner, one of the first, you know, back in like the seventies. Wow. He, um, actually late sixties, he, um, worked at a jail. And so he at a County jail in San Diego and he, he always had a drive to help sort of the underserved. And I didn't realize this. He actually passed away in September. And so when we were at his funeral, we were sort of 
but we were talking about him and it, it dawned on me that my dad had a passion for underserved. And I think I got that from him. I really do because it's just, uh, he always worked uh, at jails or um, in marginalized underserved uh, populations. And I found myself, you know, I was working at a hospital and kind of figuring out what I want to do with my life. And I saw a PA there, his name's Greg, and I can't remember his last name. And he actually went to USC and I um, started talking to him and he just seemed really happy with what he was doing. And I was working with residents and physicians, et cetera. And he was the happiest guy, you know, of the people that I met. And I don't think he was just inherently a happy guy. I think he enjoyed what he did and he was like commanding his profession and his field and, was in charge and was just doing well, excelling in his path forward. And I was like, wow, that's kind of interesting. Did some research and some homework and um, started, decided I wanted to do PA school. And for me, I always, I used to work, at, I used to manage a syringe exchange. So I used to work with intravenous drug users. It was actually at an LGBT institution, which was really, it was a great job. And so I would do all those jobs kind of at the same time. And uh, I just really fell in love with the population of um, people that are kind of down and out. I mean, people that, yeah, for whatever reason, they are where they are, or they could benefit from, you know, assistance, help, service, all those things, whatever you want to call it. So for me, it was sort of a calling. And I think that's what brought me to USC the most. I graduated in 2012. And you know, I can remember when we had our interview. People were like, well, why do you want to go to USC? And a couple of people said, oh, the name, the networking, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I really don't care about that personally. You know, for me, it was very much the mission. And I think that actually played out well in my rotations and experience that I had. They were at underserved community clinics. So to answer your question, how did I get to being a PA? I saw some PAs that were doing a great job and that were happy and content and had great career progress. And potential. And so decided to do that. And I knew that I wanted to work with underserved and USC happened to fit that bill well. And so I applied and got in. And uh, it's, it's interesting because I seem to recall it was October 5th, 2010. I was yep. interviewing for the job as a director in uh, Trojan, Trojan Hall 3, which right. uh, you guys had just moved there, I think, in that August. Yep. And and all of a sudden, like a bunch of you started looking at your phones because you'd just been uh, received a notification from the National Health Service Corps that you had right. received the full scholarship. Right. Um, so you want to talk a little bit about your, your kind of alignment with the NHSC and why you went that route and maybe share a little bit about what that meant for you going to a a school like USC to be able to have that be a free ride. Yeah. Um, oh man, that was a great day. Um, I remember I was in your interview, you were interviewing for the job as director of the PA program. And, and, uh, I went like, you know, and I raised my hands in the air and I'm like, I gotta go call my mom. (laughs) I ran out of the room. (laughs) So that was an um, awesome, awesome moment. (laughs) And so, uh, for me, I, I, you know, I've, I've loved working with the underserved, but I've also had sort of like a good fiscal understanding of life. And so I, I've sort of, I don't think that you have to choose a path of working with underserved and, and also choose like poor pay, lack of financial stability and financial independence. Like there are ways to mitigate and address primary care generally doesn't get paid as well. Um, working with the medical underserved 
sometimes is not reimbursed at the same rate as like private practice. You know, that's just kind of a fact of life, but that doesn't mean it has to be like, you have to make less or you have to, there are ways to mitigate that. And so USC happens to not be that. It happens to be on the higher end of the expense ratio of the expense spectrum. And so yes. I was like, crap, I really got to pay for this, you know, and, and I've been on my own financially since 18. And so I uh, was like, well, I've, I've worked many jobs in my life. I mean, I've had like 30 plus jobs in various areas. I was like, I could work more or I could just continue to do what I love and apply for program scholarships, et cetera, and try and get it paid for. And uh, luckily the NHSC was there and I got it on my second year. So my second and third year were paid for. And I actually went ahead and um, I still had that first year to pay for. And I did the NHSC loan repayment. So I've done both the scholarship and loan repayment. And I just, the financial trajectory, which, you know, money is a tool. It is not happiness, but, you know, using that tool in an appropriate way to set myself up to where like money is not an issue in the regard of I'm not worried about debt. I'm not worried about like, I'm going to be okay. Things are fine on the financial front, which is not everything. Absolutely not. You know, I mean, if your other areas of your life are not taken care of, then those are arguably more important, but having that taken care of was just a huge piece of mind. And it, it, for me, it was valuable because I got to do what I wanted to do anyway. Like I wouldn't have changed what I was going to do because I wanted to do that. I think that's why SD's had such great, great outcomes with the NHSE because our mission as a program is in great alignment with the National Health Service Corps. So a lot of the applicants who are getting into into that program are in fact already in alignment with what the NHSE is looking for. And, uh, you know, it certainly helps a program director sleep better at night when a good chunk of the students are getting through, you know, with limited debt. So, and, and a lot have done the loan repayment as well. So I've seen a lot of grads who didn't get the, the scholarship when they were in school, but then they ended up still working in primary care, applied for the loan repayment. And, you know, they received that for years and years until they're debt free. I mean, I think I only paid 25 grand is roughly what I can, in the backwards math of what I think I paid for my USC education because of the scholarship. And I, that's like rent, like those years of my life cost 25 grand, not just yeah. the tuition, et cetera, something. So ballpark, which is totally reasonable. <laughs> I feel like yeah, that's an absolutely. Place to pay. You know? so. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And so when you left USC, where did you go? So after that, I worked in South Los Angeles at uh, my girlfriend at the time who eventually became my wife was in residency and she had uh, a year left. And so I worked in South Los Angeles at a community clinic and it was a bit of a grind. It was, it was rough, but whenever I talk about it with people, I'm like, yeah, you know, it was really tough. It was not the best support, 20 to 25 patients a day, no admin time, you know, it was, it was rough, but at the same time, would I have done it again? The answer is yes, I would have, because I came out, pretty strong. I really do feel that I came out. I'm, I mean, I was up to date and I were best friends. Sure. My, my girlfriend now wife at the time was great for whenever I truly had questions that I would, you know, really do my due diligence and research. And then if I had questions, then I would ask her. And then I also worked with the USA, a USCPA alum at that job who was really helpful. And she kind of took me under her wing, which was really sweet of her. Um, and so because of that, I felt 
because I made it through the fire of sorts, uh-huh. I, 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 there's like a sense of, I can do anything in that regard yeah. of like, I, I have, and I had some really sick, complicated, difficult patients and it was a great experience though. You know, I actually, like I said, I would do it again, ultimately. So when people ask me about it, I tell them it was tough. I, I mean, I will tell you just you and me, between you and me and no one else, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, um, you know, I almost put myself on antidepressants because it was tough uh-huh. at times. And everything else in my life was fantastic. You know, I had a great relationship with my girlfriend, such now wife. And then I had an excellent friend group. I lived in a beautiful place doing and my weekends were fantastic. So I think that really helped me through um, having a good support network, et cetera, but I wouldn't have done it again in hindsight. So I, well, and it sounds, and it sounds like a key, a key aspect of being an NHSE scholar when you graduate and you're practicing is to make sure you have a strong support network with you. Oh my goodness. Yes. Uh, if you, because I don't know that there's a single NHSC site that doesn't have challenges and doesn't have like, mm-hmm. you know, probably some significant challenges, however you want to rate it. Like you're gonna learn quickly. And that's sort of how I became an NHSC site. You're gonna have to, you know, put your nose to the grindstone for a bit. Yeah. They're hurting. <laughs> right. Right. And that's like part of the gig, right. <laughs> Is you go somewhere yeah. where it's, and so but it was totally worth it. In hindsight, it was like fantastic. And like the financial trajectory of life, uh, it, it's just, I can't, it's remarkable how different my, you know, if I was still paying off loans, then it, it, it it's just two completely different paths and, and numbers. Right. And, it, and again, for me, it was what I wanted to do. So it was easy. It wasn't that hard. Sure. I mean, choice. when you think about compounding interest, right? If, if totally. you are, you putting that, you know, fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a month towards your loans instead of towards your investments. It's a huge right. difference when you retire. Yeah, so. I've actually gotten really into the financial independence retire early, and I actually don't know that I want to retire early personally, but I want the option to do what I want to do. So if I yeah. want to take a lower paying job eventually, great, because I want to do it because I I, right. I don't care what the pay is so much, you know. And so for me, it, like having that independence is actually more just giving me options and giving me sort of uh, a tool, you know, using money as a tool to have a happier, more what I want in life of whatever that. Sure. Be, so. Now, Steve, a lot of people who do their NHSC scholarship uh, tour, if you will, right. um, they do the tour and then they head right off into private practice. Not, yeah. not everybody, but but yeah. a fair amount. Yet you chose to head to North. I doubled Arizona. down. <laughs> I went yeah, to higher, so talk a higher Hibson score. <laughs> yeah, talk about that decision, and 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 that that's been quite a while now. So yeah, I've, what, you I've, know, what so was it about? I did three years in South Los Angeles, and then I've done uh, six years in February, so six years in a month in uh, Indian Health Service in Chinle, Arizona, in the middle of the Navajo Nation. You know, for me, uh, so we were in LA and we were just kind of feeling the grind of Los Angeles a little bit. I love it. LA is fantastic. California is great. Like it, it's beautiful, wonderful, et cetera. But um, I think I just wanted something different. And so when I was actually at an NHSC conference early on, I, there was an Indian health service recruiter. And I remember just hearing him out and talking with him. And it was, um, he was like, no, really, it's a great job do great things. It's, yo, you're an underserved community. Well, this is the same thing, only blah, blah, blah. We kind of, the way we describe it now to other applicants is Indian Health Service is like 
global health, peace for health, only you have equipment and labs and support, et cetera. So you're doing global health, essentially. We actually have two fellowship programs with UCSF and University of Utah that send their global health fellows to here in Chinle, and they work with us in the hospital, and they do half their time here to pay for the other half when they're abroad. And so they do global health here in Chinle, and then they go abroad to many different countries. Um, and it's been a great, we've actually had numerous people come and work here afterwards from those programs. And so it, it, if you like that global medicine, that working with underserved and that ability to actually, you know, I mean, if you're working at a, at a HIV clinic in, in uh, Malawi, you're going to treat everything as TB and HIV. You're just going to, you're not going to be able to diagnose what's going wrong, you know, because you don't have MRI, CT, blah, 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 extensive lab. Sure. Here, we have those services. We have MRI on site. We have an incredible team of providers here. And so my, to get back to your question, I finished my three years in, in um, Los Angeles and we wanted something different. I remember this recruiter talking about IHS and uh, I was like, hey, I told my wife, I said, hey, what do you think about going to Indian Health Services? And she just laughed at me and thought I was crazy. <laughs> She thought it was the most crazy idea that she'd ever heard of. And then she started talking to people that weren't me. <laughs> and yeah, my husband thinks we should do IHS. And she, one of the people that she really respected at UCLA, where she was doing residency, said, and I actually completely agree with this statement, that IHS is the pinnacle of their personal and professional career. And wow. um, it actually is. It's, I, I call it the Goldilocks job. You know, it's not too hot, not too cold. It's just right. I feel like I work the right amount and I feel days I feel stressed, um, but I always feel satisfied with what I do. I always feel like I'm making a difference and things are better. And, you know, after six years, I've been the chief of staff for the hospital here for approximately three and a half years now. And um, it's been a really rewarding experience. There have been challenges, of course, but it's, I talked to some of my other friends that are working elsewhere and it's a great job. We have a, like, it's a great, system job and our patients are fantastic we a lot of the pressures in medicine don't apply here we treat patients as they need to be treated and we really do give a high standard of care which is fantastic it's that is fantastic so the insurance barriers that many others face in right. modern u.s healthcare, uh, it's a little different for you Absolutely. So all of, I mean, 80% of our population is on Medicaid, on state Medicaid, and um, some are on about 15 are on uh, Medicare and five are uninsured, but IHS has a significant purchase referred care program. So they have money set aside for people that do not have insurance and they have many millions set aside like for Chin Lee. So if I need an MRI and a patient, I just get the MRI and someone will pay for it. It will be taken care of one way or the other. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a very rewarding, great job. So let's talk just for a second about your role as a PA mm -hmm. and the life in the day of a PA in Chin Lee. Right. And then let's, then maybe we can shift gears and talk about your role as chief of staff. Cause sure. you know, that I'm not aware of any other PAs in the country that are serving as a chief of staff currently. There may be, but I think right. that's a really impressive accomplishment. So, so let's talk first about the prior to being a chief of staff. What's your typical day like? So uh, we show up at eight. We, um, we see a patient every 15 minutes, but the load is 20 patients a day. 
I work in family practice. So in family practice, we happen to have diabetes educators in clinic. So anytime there's any diabetes related thing, they are in the room with us and they help translate frequently. We have integrated behavioral health in clinic. So if there's any psychosocial issues taking place, we can bring someone into the room to help with that. There, what else? Um, And we have, we're a closed system. So kind of like the VA, where if a patient needs to get labs done, I'm like, yeah, go down the hallway, get the labs done. (laughs) And so they can go down the hallways. And so if I have to do like an urgent care type workup, they go get the labs done and they come back and I tell them, okay, here are your results. Here's what's going on. Or here's your chest x-ray. And so radiology. And then if it's too complicated, I can send them to the ER and it's just down the hallway as well. Um, Or when the ER is too full to handle a patient that's acutely ill, I'll fly them out from clinic. And so about once a month, we'll actually fly someone out from clinic and we'll call and arrange the transport, talk to the nurse supervisor who arrange with the medevac company and then call the receiving institution and say, Hey, this is what I have. Do you have a bed? Okay, great. And so we work on that. You know, that doesn't happen all the time, but it happens um, because we have a pretty sick patient population overall. There's a high burden of disease across the board. and um, Just overall poverty index is pretty high. So we, I would see 20 patients in a day. We have noon to one off and then um, one to 420 is my last patient. And so, you know, with our, we have a relatively high no-show rate of like 20 to 30%. And that varies day to day. Some days I see all my patients. Some days I see 10, you know, generally it's about 16 to 18 is sort of ballpark wise where, where I end up. Um, They are complicated and they are complex and there's a lot going on. So it's, it is frequently a, a big visit uh, and there's can be a lot going on. It's rarely just a better refill, but yeah, sure. I, I guess I'm used to that by now. Cause when you're working in the underserved mm-hmm. population, it's kind of like, uh, it's to be expected. That's the story. Yeah. And so you, you are their resource. And um, one thing I'll sort of comment on having worked in urban poverty and then worked in rural poverty, they are not the same. They have similarities, but rural poverty is it, there's just fewer resources across the board and it's it's a different animal altogether so it's 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 we have more resources here because of that um, at our hospital and our institution and our institution is mission driven so even if we don't make money on something we do it frequently um, sure. like our diabetes educators we don't build for that so it's valuable to the system. It helps the providers. It helps the patients, um, et cetera. So that's kind of a typical day of being a PA at um, Indian Health Services. We work three days a week out of a four-day shift. So one of those days is admin. And we okay. obviously mix it up. It's not like a full day. So we do six half sessions, so three full days. And then we have Thursday morning, the whole hospital is on administrative tasks um, or public announcements, meetings, et cetera. And then we have our own uh, just administrative session throughout the week. Sometimes it varies. Uh, so it, it's a decent amount of admin. It's 25% of your time is administrative yeah. to accomplish. So you, so you feel like you can, you can stay on top of things. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You do. I mean, it's still a challenge, you know, of course, but I compared to other jobs and other friends of mine that have had gigs elsewhere, we have a very generous amount of time to, to complete our job. And, you know, as you sure. go up in the administrative ladder of having more administrative stuff, like I have less time now, but I also, they've also protected my, I, I have less clinic as well now because I have to, because of the things I have yeah. to do. So that's evolved over time. 
What's been different for you uh, when you took on the role as chief of staff? I mean, there's just the whole medical staff bylaws, for one, um, understanding how PAs and everyone works in an institution. IHS is unique in the sense that for the chief of staff position, it's not required to be a physician. It, it can be any of the staff and medical staff members. So we've had an optometrist in this position in the past. We've had physicians in this position in the past. So it's a unique governance in that regard. And being a part of IHS, so there's Navajo area, which we are a part of, that we uh, work with. Um, they have sort of a governance ability over us, but then there's headquarters as well. But then there's, we're federal and there are tribal entities as well. So there's just many different styles of governance within IHS. And there's mm -hmm. sort of strengths and weaknesses of those styles. For me, uh, just the ability to have these opportunities and this growth. I'm on, uh, I have a lot of national exposure with IHS headquarters, et cetera, because um, they need someone from Chile to be on there, or I happen to have that skill set. Um, I'm finishing a master's in informatics as well. So I do a lot of our informatics things here and try to share with IHS at large, which has been a great experience. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that cultural transition for you, because I know you're, you're somebody who takes that very seriously. Uh, so what was that like for you to kind of evolve through working on sovereign nation land? It was, yeah. So, you know, working with underserved marginalized populations, there's always a learning curve, you know, in, in South LA. Uh, I've learned a lot. The patients taught me quite a bit. And coming out here, um, there's just, it, the degree of learning was, a lot more because it's totally foreign to me. Uh, I, I really did not know that much about um, Native Americans. Um, so it was a great learning experience. Some of the learning moments that I, I had were um, in Navajo culture, you don't speak about negative things because it's as if you're wishing them upon someone. And I remember talking about a screening colonoscopy with someone and the patient took it very poorly. Like they thought I wanted to give them colon cancer. And I was like, no, no. And that was very early on, thankfully. And I corrected. And now I speak like we want to make sure you are as healthy as can be. We'd like to do this to make sure that your health is as good as possible. Um, That's kind of a nice way to look at life, right? Right. Flip right. The exactly. 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 So it's, um, I kind of, I view it as two things. One, you know, in the workplace, there's like the culture of the workplace is mission driven and focused on our patients. Uh, we really, really care. And we really put a priority of being culturally sensitive and making sure that the patient's needs are addressed. And like we, um, if a patient would like to speak with native medicine, I go get them and I bring them in the room and I'm like, stop. All right, cool. Let's do that right now just being very accommodating in those regards. And then there's the cultural component of just learning the different aspects of the culture of the workplace and, and then the cultural components of the greater uh, Native American reservation are just so cool. They're, they're really fascinating. The Diné, which is the original name for the Navajo, have a lot of great teachings, a lot of great people and great activities and great things that they do in life and their philosophies. For example, family here is not at all how Belagana, which are white people feel or think about family. Um, Belagana feel that it's like my brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle, blood relations. Here it's all by clan. So there's roughly 50 odd clan, 50 or so clans in the Navajo Nation. And 
you are married, you're a product of your father's clan and your mother's clan. And you are made of two clans. Everyone in those clans is your brother, sister, father. You know, they are your relation. And so sure. when we first came here, you know, people were like, oh, my, my, my sister's getting married. Oh, my brother's getting married. Oh, I have to go to a funeral, my cousin of mine, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, man, you have it. How big is your family? I, it just took me a while to sort of comprehend. <laughs> like, you keep referencing family members. And I like, I don't know how that's possible. And they were like, oh, it's by, and then I finally learned that it's by clans, how they define it. And that really matters when you, COVID, for example, COVID, there is not a single member here that hasn't had dozens of family members that have had significant negative outcomes or significant problems or significant consequences from COVID. And they view them as family. So imagine if your brothers or sisters were negatively, had a negative outcome of some regard, you know, so it's really affected the community, not to bring it back to COVID, but like that concept of family is a cultural component in Navajo that's just really important and something that was really valuable to me to learn. And you live on the reservation, correct? It's just too far away to... The colloquial okay. phrase is we're deep reds. <laughs> so um, we, we live in the middle of the Navajo Reservation, which is the size of West Virginia. Um, and we are as middle as it gets. We're th- roughly three hours from a decent sized city. Yeah. The biggest sized city is um, uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. And that's, you know, just under three hours away. And that's roughly a 50,000 person city. So it's not, I don't think anyone would call it a huge city. But sure. That's where a lot of our patients have to go for specialty care. Um, Albuquerque is roughly four hours. Phoenix is six. Denver's nine. So we're in the four corners region. We're pretty close to it. We're like an hour and a half away from it. That's a very big, big territory. I drove through there last year to to bring my daughter from Colorado back to Phoenix. And yeah. it's uh it's a long drive through. It's beautiful, beautiful country though. It's gorgeous. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. You're right by Monument Valley. It's not too far away. It's not nothing's too far away. Your whole concept of, of distance and driving, like my kids who are two and three, they can do a four-hour car ride easy, you know, because yeah. we do it all the time, you know. And yeah. It's funny, I actually did the math when I first got out here, and I actually probably drive as much as I did in Los Angeles. I just do it twice <laughs> a month. You know, I just, it's not daily. It's its just twice a month. You know, it's sure. very, it's one big drive with a podcast or having really good conversation with my wife and my kids, et cetera. So yeah. it's not, it's not the same, obviously, but it's probably the same end of hours in the car. So, yeah. Yeah. Going 70 you, on you, open road, no traffic, of course. Yeah, that, exactly. So you, you brought up COVID. Let's talk a little bit yeah. about COVID because obviously the uh, initial part of the virus just decimated your community. Yet you all did some really unique things to try to get on top of this and turn the tide, so to speak. So do you want to talk a little bit about your your learnings from the early on experience of COVID and what you all have been doing with technology to really make a difference? Yeah, we've had a great, I mean, COVID's been terrible and it's just really decimated a lot of this community and a lot of the cultural norms and sort of traditions have been squashed because you can't really gather in groups Um, and ceremonies were really common here. Rodeos are very common. That's just really made it, everyone's just kind of depressed and that's everywhere, but, you know, in a rural community where there aren't as many social gatherings, it, it really takes its toll. We... I think for the first six to eight months of COVID, we were the top 10 per capita. So per capita, we have been in the top 10 the entire time. 
for the most part. Our rate of positivity was just sky high. And part of that is we have large numbers of people living in one house in a congregate setting, multi-generational and poor at, you know, 25%, these numbers may be a little dated, but the 25% don't have access to running water or power. Um, yeah. Actually, I think it's a third for water. So it's just really hard to wash your hands all the time and maintain social distancing in those in that environment, in that context, let alone that concept of family. Oh, it's my brother who, you know, when you, you have a very large family, well, it's just my brother, you know, he's okay. Well, he works as a welder in Phoenix and happened to have brought COVID. So we, our response has been pretty remarkable. And when we look at, when I talk to other people about COVID or family members even, um, the response of Southern California has not been nearly as good as it has been here. And that's partly, maybe it's the closed system and our own inherent advantages in that regard. But we were, I was vaccinated December 17th over a year, just over a year ago. So we had the vaccine early on and we pushed it hard. And historically, Navajo have never been resistant to vaccines. And our theory on that is that the disease burden of vaccine preventable illnesses has so high here. And it like people remember meningococcal disease. People remember, I have patients that are in their early 20s that suffered from it. Like vaccines did not truly arrive here until the late to mid 90s. Um, and so there wasn't wide scale vaccination. So a lot of those illnesses are here. So when the vaccine arrived, everyone got vaccinated at a higher rate than anywhere else or most other places. Native Americans have been very quick to adopt the immunization. When COVID first came on and it was just really scary and things were uh, challenging, we had been preparing to start a telemedicine program. It was actually my project being in informatics. I wanted to start a telehealth program because I feel that Native American populations are the best population for telemedicine. You know, I mean, the two things that telemedicine has been proven to show is reduced travel burden and the cost of that, of childcare, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's sure. really been shown to do those things well. And like when it's three hours one way to subspecialists, you know, that's pretty valuable for a six hour round trip. Um, let alone if it's a chronic disease, you have to go quite regularly. So what we did is we took, we scrapped our telehealth program and we made a COVID telehealth clinic on site. The reason we did it on site is a couple of reasons. One, there's no internet here. Like we uh, are in both a literal desert and a broadband desert. There, we just don't have access to high quality broadband. It, it doesn't exist. So the only real reliable internet is at the facility. So we set up, we, we took down or we modified a couple rooms and we would screen the patients, room them into our women's health department that had to get modified and became our respiratory clinic. And mm -hmm. we would remotely see the patients and we were concerned how the patients would receive it, you know, because this is kind of a big jump from in-person to now you're talking to a television screen. Or, um, and they were really excited about it, partly because they thought we would give them COVID. <laughs> they were worried that the <laughs> providers were higher risk. And so we didn't get a single complaint about it That's whatsoever. Great. And we saw over 12,000 people via that, that respiratory clinic. And it's a small area, you know, I mean, that's like roughly probably a fourth of our visits in an annual year. Yeah. So it was just able to preserve PPE, able to address the needs of the community and rapidly triage to get someone to the emergency room to get services, et cetera. So that was a pretty, we were, because we had the equipment on hand, I think we launched it March 20th 
is when we were ready to go. And I don't know that other IHS facilities were able to do that uh, or yeah, across the nation. That was, we were, it was fortunate. Yeah. It's very fortunate. Yeah. Um, that's and really then we early. also, it was, it really was. And so we were able to sort of hone that process pretty early on. And it was just a, a machine that was able to address the need well. Um, and then we've also had great access to monoclonal antibodies. Our pharmacy has been very proactive. We also, as I mentioned, we got high priority of getting the vaccine here because we were always in the top 10 per capita hit spot. Um, they shut down the whole res. Uh, I, I remember my wife was actually pregnant in the first part of COVID. And she was like, man, I just, I just need to get off. I need to go somewhere. I need to do anything. We have been at home for like four or five months straight and haven't left the house. And uh-huh. they closed the gas stations. Like gas stations weren't giving gas. Wow. So we had to borrow some gas from a neighbor to, just to get off reds. Yeah. Because it was that serious of a lockdown. And that was wow. June. You know, that wasn't like early on in the pandemic. I guess now it was early. But so our response has been, we really have worked together as a team. I think having that mission-driven organization with a public health mandate is just paramount to a success that will make it work. Like if it pays for itself, great. If it doesn't, well, we got to do it because it needs to be done. And that yeah. attitude and mentality of our my colleagues and coworkers has been fantastic. We have excellent leadership here which is probably why I really like my jobs because I work with great people. And um, we've been able, when you have a great team, you attract great talent. We have infectious disease here. We just, we had cardiology and they're actually coming back because they, they don't like the private practice world as much as they like it here. A lot of options and opportunity. And uh, some of our providers have been here for 30 years. So there's like an in-depth institutional knowledge of, you know, they were working here when the roads weren't really paved practically. Mm-hmm. There's like a good depth, knowledge, experience, and breadth of, of just people. I Some of my best friends here are, you know, 60, 70 years old. And because we all get, I mean, and there's some people, if you don't get along, you kind of learn to work around it. And, oh, I really, you know, sure, I disagree with so-and-so on these subjects or these things, but I work with them, their quality. And, like, I feel like this is what America used to be, where yeah. everyone kind of works on their differences and comes to mutual conclusions. And so with all of those things were strengths for us to respond to COVID. And thankfully it, uh, it was much better. And now it's just going crazy. Uh, we have hundreds of positives every day, but everyone's vaccinated and we do have monoclonal antibodies. So it's kind of a different, it's a different experience. So your morbidity mortality is much better than it was early on. We, no one is intubated currently, you know, and we used That's to fantastic. be completely full. We used to have 25, 20, I think 30 people intubated for, we're a 55 bed hospital in the middle of res, you know, and yeah. the only reason we had that many people was because every other hospital was full. Arizona's capacity at that time was 90% of the ICU beds were full. And so we were looking at truly doing rationing care. It, it got really close. And luckily we avoided that. It got, we, we did some creative, uh, like we had people boarding in the ED longer than they should and things like that, but we kind of had to do what we had to do. So yeah, we had to get creative. We had a great team on the ground to do so, which was, so overall, it was a fantastic, I mean, it was a fantastic learning and growing experience that I would have loved to avoid it. But but to get tests, we have always had, anyone can get tested at any time, just walk up. And we would give you testing or vaccine, even if you're not native, anyone. My, my father-in-law and mother-in-law were visiting and 
they got vaccinated because uh, in Sri Lanka, they did not have access or they, they actually, they were able to get access to vaccines here and not there. So at sure. that time, so it was, it's been great in that regard, just how well we could do and function as a team. So Steve, as we kind of wrap up, I wonder if you could share with us just a couple of the key, key cultural things that you've learned that maybe you think would be beneficial for healthcare providers to, to think about. Um, yeah. So one thing I've learned is uh, when a patient says that they don't want to do something or, or like just engaging resistance to be like, okay, well, let's talk about that. Let's explain. So for me, one of the, there's been a couple moments of where a patient was not interested in something. And it was because, for example, I had a very depressed patient. I'll just give you hard examples. Um, and they, I was like talking about an SSRI and they were like, no, I'd rather do a ceremony. And it's actually legal for in the uh, Native American church to do peyote. And I was like, okay, great. Go ahead and do that. Let's see you back in a while. And they came back and they felt great. They felt like it truly helped them. And, you know, so I guess one of the cultural things is the goal is the start with the end in mind. And if a patient can get to that good place, whatever that is, a good outcome, then that's what's important and not necessarily sure. how they get there. You know, so sure, I was going to give them an SSRI, but they were like, no, I don't want to do that. I was like, okay. Well, and they, so just engaging with them on what they're willing to do, how, like, working with them as much as you can and then finding out what is appropriate for them, you know, and, and that patient has, I've seen them a couple of times and they, they're doing great. So that, that ceremony, yeah. that service worked for them. It really spoke to their needs, their cultural identity, their cultural desire. And so just embracing it, being like, fantastic. That's great. So that like, I guess, not being rigid in your approach and being flexible with with an understanding of the goal is for a healthy outcome for them to get to the space where the disease is improved. Yeah. And if they can yeah. do that through many other mechanisms, um, I had one guy that was in the rodeo and rodeo culture out here is a big deal. And he was just killing himself, but he, he, he said it was a way of life. I can't not do it. I'm like, all right, well, can we do this? Can we buy better safety equipment? Can we, you know, things like that. Hey, don't do this section of the rodeo, things like that. So mitigating those risks and working, you know, LGBT patients that are performing high risk activities, you know, be like, hey, well, can we start prep? Can we do this? So just at really working with patients for that goal and especially their cultural desires, customs and accommodating, because if you win that, if you are willing to do that with them, then they'll, they'll trust you and they'll, they'll, you're a partner in their process towards health. So yeah, yeah, health. that's, it's a great lesson for all of us, regardless of where we're practicing. It, it really is about the patient. Right, so. right. And willing to, to just work with them. Um, other cultural components are, I mean, there's just, there's so many, it's, it's been a great experience just learning all the little things. Oh, one thing I'll, I'll kind of tell anyone that listens that I have found incredibly useful is try to learn a little bit of the language of whatever language you're working with. You know, um, in, in, I remember I had a couple of patients that spoke several Mayan dialects in South Los Angeles, and I would try and learn a couple of those. And they nicknamed me Sukti, which means bearded guy. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> um, which was great. And, and like, a, like just putting forth that effort was, is so valuable. When I go into a room, I say, Yate Shema. And when I, 
say goodbye, which means hello, grandmother. And so uh, all of the grandmothers get tickled when I do that. They're just like, it puts a smile on their face. They, yeah. they know that I'm invested in the community. I'm invested in learning their language. I'm invested in helping them. So just little efforts like that. And it's not that hard to, to learn that. Or when I say goodbye, I say, Hagone, Hagashin, which just means like understood, goodbye, thank you for coming, kind of thing. And and I do it terribly. They laugh at me every single time, but I try. <laughs> and, they, and they like any Navajo person that's listening to this is gonna be like, oh dear, that was terrible. Uh, and, but it, it, it's the effort. It's it's the desire yeah. to meet them where they're at and, and yeah, recognize like, hey. Welcome, That's one of my greatest lessons in life. I, I had a, um, I practiced medicine in a private practice in the western suburbs of Chicago. I had a small Hispanic community of patients that would come to to us, and I did the same thing, right? And and, and I would say to the one, this one family comes to mind. I would say to them, let's set you up to come in at five o'clock for your appointments so that I can stay late. And, and we can work through the language barriers together and really take time to understand what your challenges are. And, you know, literally a couple of years later, they named their first child after me, their first son. Oh, wow. And and it was just such an incredible honor and such a little thing that I was doing to try to help make their experience better. And it also, you know, selfishly made my experience better, too. So, great, great. yeah, yeah. I so mean, it's, I'm glad to hear that. You were able to help them get to a better outcome. And like it, it was a relationship. Um, which is what we're supposed to be doing anyway. That's the goal, right? right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Steve, is there anything else you were hoping to share with us today before we sign off? I think you and I talked about briefly. Uh, so being in the chief of staff role has just made me realize like how challenging leadership is and how you're not going to please everyone and you're going to have to make difficult decisions. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I think that the PA profession needs more leaders and needs to like, that higher level of um, executive and getting up to chief, whatever, it, it, because it's so enlightening. And I, I've been on several big calls and I've actually received messages. Like it's so great to see a PA in this role and to see a PA sort of doing that. And it's, it's funny. Cause I was like, yeah, I'm just doing my job you know, going forward. And, and uh, yeah, but it's been remarkable how much it's mean to people in, in and out of the profession. That I, I hope that there's more opportunity for more. And I'm sort of trying to advocate for that as much as I can in, in, in my small I, sphere. I, I think it's amazing. I, I think, you know, and speaking with uh, Stanford a few episodes ago, there's, there's uh, they have a, a sociologist on their team. And I was talking to her about the differences between the average PA and the average whatever you know, whatever the health profession is. And I just said, there just, there is something different about us generalizing. There's something different about us sociologically. And I think we're wired differently in the way that leadership roles and being able to navigate and get along with a lot of different personalities might come a little bit easier to some of us. And it's a good reminder to be nice to your leaders because it is a, a lonely, oh, tough job sometimes. Like it is, you know, it's funny. I never thought that. In fact, I probably thought the opposite of like grumbly, like, oh, it's easy where they are. <laughs> it, it is not. You know, I have truly learned it is it is difficult sometimes, you know, and having yeah. to sometimes do things that you really don't want to do at all. <laughs> but it has to. Yeah. Be. But it has to be. You have to do the right thing. 
Sometimes the right thing is uh, is tough. Well, Steve, thank you so much. This is fantastic. Uh, I know the audience would be really delighted to hear your story, and and what a great opportunity if you if you want to get rid of some of that stress from medicine and still make a difference in the lives of people. It sounds like IHS is a great place to go. It's it's awesome. If anyone wants to reach out, I don't know if you guys have. Uh... Uh, footnote um, thing, but you can we them. do on our on our website. We can put that on there, and I'll be happy yeah, to do no, that. That's fine. We'd like to thank our guest Steve Neal for sharing his insights into the rich nature of serving the Navajo Nation, and also about the insights of the culture and the impact of working with Indian Health Services. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Daniel Park, who is the director of the Postgraduate Fellowship Program in Urology at Tech Medicine of USC. Dan talks to us about his role, about what residents are doing, and what the benefits of a postgraduate fellowship program may be. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life. And thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Arizona.